Australia's always been known as the land of extremes, and those extremes are getting more extreme. <laughs> This is a Livable Future podcast. I'm Cody Sanford. So, it's wildfire season in the western United States, and as I record this, the sky is hazy from a forest fire that's thousands of miles away. This is an example of how wildfires have a much greater impact than what you see in just the burn zone. In the United States, there's so many examples like this one that detail how climate change is impacting the health of our cities, ecosystems, and livelihoods. And because of this, I think it can be easy for all of us to sort of forget how these same issues affect people all over Earth. In this episode, we talk with environmentalist Shane French from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. We compare the parallels in the wildfires in Australia between those we see in the United States. Stay tuned to the end to hear Shane's advice for how to withstand the ups and downs that environmentalism has faced through the decades. So uh, my name's Shane. Um, I study at the Monash University. And I also work at the La Trobe University, um, currently at a wildlife sanctuary. I've certainly enjoyed both. Um, the Monash course I'm doing, the Master of Sustainability, is, has been really fantastic. Um, and Dr. Susie Ho um, is just an inspiration. And all the lecturers and everything, it's been a really fabulous place. So, yeah, thank you, Monash. The social science is, is what I think really appeals to me, um, taking the complex stuff and making it really simple and adaptable to anyone. So a five-year-old can do something to help the world be a better place. And, and a 70-year-old can do something and a 40-year-old and a banker and a hippie and a whoever. So yeah, that's, that's my thing. And I'm currently really getting into um, urban biodiversity. So connecting people in urban areas to nature and going through the empathy, because again, it's empathy creates awareness and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy really and it creates a want to, and a desire to protect the natural environment um, if you can empathize with it and enjoy it so yeah yeah i'm trying to take a, a more sustainable approach for myself um, and you can't win every battle and you've got to choose the things that you're really passionate about because people pick up on that passion so that's kind of how I landed at where I am now, I guess. And so that journey is continuing at La Trobe University um, with my work at the Wildlife Sanctuary. Shane, I think that's really cool that you have a passion for teaching everyone about sustainability. And that makes me want to ask, simply put, how do you see wildfires role in the Australian outback? Fires have always been a part of Australia's ecosystem um, for tens of thousands of years. The First Nations people uh, used fire as, as land management and land regeneration. Um, we're starting to see some of those, they're often called cultural burns, um, but those land management practices are starting to come out and local councils are, are participating um, with local First Nations groups in bringing back some of these burns, which is great. It's really great to see. Um, so it's a really important part of Australia's regeneration and habitat management um, and it has been for a really, really long time. What we're seeing is is fire is changing. 
So the techniques that we use like backburning and things like that to, to remove understory, excessive understory in, in high prone areas, fire prone areas, um, those techniques are having to change. So it's the land regeneration component is a really important part of fire and the land management component and f- fire is, is, you know, integral to our, to our ecosystem. But yeah, the change in fire is the some is something that we're really having to deal with in Australia now. So the changing conditions, the drying out of the landscapes and just the intensity of fires um, is, is really changing the way that our, we relate to fire. To me, it's striking how similar this problem is in Australia and the United States. The change, the rapid change in conditions in these ecosystems. Yes, wildfires are common and are prone and natural in these ecosystems, but not to the level that we're seeing right now. Um, one thing that I know is different here or maybe different is that we're having a lot of development in these areas that are prone to wildfires. I'm not sure if that's the case in Australia, but um, one of the biggest similarities that you mentioned that I want to highlight really quick is that the indigenous people in Australia used fire for thousands of years as a tool in these ecosystems. This is the same in the Americas. Native tribes used fire to help with agriculture, hunting, travel, more, and more than that. It's only recent that we stopped using wildfires as a tool. But that has left sort of like in America, this, I don't know, it's almost feels like it's waiting to burn because we stopped doing it. As we continue to talk about the similarities between wildfires in Australia and the United States, Shane, can you describe what the 2019-2020 fire season was like in Australia? The 2019-2020 fires were um, horrible. So we'd had some really major fires come through just up from where I live in 2009. Uh, I was in India at the time, but it made global headlines um, and wiped out most of the town, a few towns up from us in the hills, or King Lake. Um, they're still dealing with the trauma of that um, and people are still rebuilding their homes um, even 10 years, you know, 12 years later. Um, that fire was unprecedented at the time. So... The, the wind change and the ferocity of the fire was just not something that we were used to or we were expecting. So the fire departments weren't ready. Um, all of the, uh, I guess, preparations that we were taught um, for the last 20 or so years for our houses and things had to be rethought because we'd never seen these conditions and this ferocity before and the, the speed of what the fires moved. People just couldn't leave. So again, in you know 10 years later, in 2019, um, again, massive, massive fires burning incredibly hot, travelling at incredible speeds. Um, all you could do was get out of the way. And some communities didn't have a chance to get out of the way. So it was... I may have been the first, I think, military evacuation of Australia's own citizens who were stuck um, down in Gippsland on, on beaches. And the Navy came and took them to safety. We had some friends who go down there every year, um, go down to that area that was burnt, and they 
take caravans and they stay down for two or three weeks and they go down with friends and it's an annual event for them. They were caught um, and they had to make a decision. Um, basically, rangers came into where they were camping and said, you've got 10 or so minutes to leave. The fire's on the way. And they just had to up and leave. So they took their kids, they packed you know, a bag of clothes and they left everything and they lost it all. So they lost their caravan, but heaps of people lost their homes and and some unfortunately, um, you know, lost their lives. Fires have become incredibly unpredictable um, and it's getting harder and harder to plan for fires and the fire seasons are changing as well. So... Fire seasons are now starting earlier in the year and they tend to be going longer and we have fires burning hotter, which means that uh, the regeneration that the forest gets from the fires in some species of plants, it isn't happening. The fires are just burning too hot. So it's actually cooking the seed pods. It's not cracking them open. Um, it's not, I guess, getting activating the seeds. Um, it's killing them. So there's a real ecosystem change happening, not just from climate change, but from the impacts of fire. And of course, we're getting longer and more regular droughts as well, which often coincide with large fire events. So I've had a really good rainy summer um, this year, which has been awesome. Um, Things have stayed pretty green and the dams have stayed full and the water catchments. So Melbourne's water supply has been quite quite good and quite secure but it does mean that there will be a lot of extra growth when Mm -hmm. the next change comes along and if we see another drought or we see another really bad fire season so yeah australia's always been known as the land of extremes and those extremes are getting more extreme (laughs) shane that's a really good point the vegetation growth once drought conditions kick in again, that vegetation, it's just going to be fuel burn for the inevitable fires. Overall, Shane, I think we had a great discussion on the fires in Australia and the United States comparing what we saw and what we know. Uh, But I want to switch gears a little bit to the Australian outback. In the United States, we always hear about the poisonous animals and everything's trying to kill you in Australia is the memes that we always see online. Um, I want to ask, as an environmentalist, Shane, how do you view the human in nature interaction with these poisonous animals? Is it really as extreme as we hear? And and what do you um, feel and what's your sort of favorite aspect and part of the Australian outback and wildlife? One thing I really love about Australian wildlife is that most of them look really cute. Well, not most of them, but a lot of a lot of Australian animals, your koalas and platypus and things like that, look really cute. Um, but they'll go yeah, so they don't suffer fools. They um, can be in their moment um, really protect themselves. Um, so I really like that about Australian animals. they and their their adaptation um, to our island is just. Is, is fascinating um, and the way that they've evolved and adapted to our our climate and our beautiful but can be very harsh um, conditions you know you've, you've got a some parts of Australian bush you've um, yeah you've got to be you've got to be pretty tough to hang in there so yeah they're really really well adapted so that's really cool um, it's really hard to pick a favorite animal. Um, everyone's partial to a kangaroo. There's something, there's some nonchalance about a kangaroo that I just love. They just look at you like, what? What are you looking at? 
And then I think, well, I'm looking at one of the best-looking animals in the world. And they go, yeah, whatever. Anyway, that's my little story for it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're, you know, all parts of the world have some really cool animals and unique wildlife. But um, I think we're pretty fortunate. And um, I never get tired of seeing them. So we have kangaroos, you know, kind of around our house, um, bouncing around in the forests. And I just, I never get tired of it. They're um, quite incredible creatures. So, Yeah. Very cute, but don't upset them. That's kind of cool. I like that. So in the States, you always hear about poisonous Aussie wildlife. Um, yeah, yeah. We, um, I think two of the 10 deadliest snakes are in, in our part of the world, um, like where I live. Um, so we've got the, the brown snakes, which, again, don't suffer fools. Um, tiger snakes are kind of... They're not as aggressive as people make them out to be. Um, they, you know, they protect themselves. They're pretty amazing looking animals too. So I also have really sad memories of killing snakes. We don't do that anymore. You're not allowed to do that. But in the in the 80s, that was that was a, a national pastime in summer, um, taking a shovel out and chopping off their heads and stuff. So yeah, it's been an interesting, we have an interesting relationship with Australia, in, with snakes in Australia. It's changing um, and it's becoming, I think, a lot more respectful. You get a snake catcher now and you move the snake, you don't kill it. Um, but yeah, they're, they're around. I think you've just, you, um, it's just part of part of your being. You just deal with it. And, and you know, there's in the ocean, there's stuff you just got to deal with. There's blue bottles and, and puffer fish and things like that. But, you know, you don't, you don't see them as much as I think people think you do. Like you don't get into the water and there's a shark just there. They're around, but um, yeah, generally if you leave an animal alone, it'll leave you alone. Um, I, I tend to find and yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Like going back to snakes, um, you know, tiger snakes, for example, if, if you move them, they can be very aggressive in finding new space. So sometimes you leave a snake and it's just used to you being there. Um, we're kind of lucky we don't we don't see that many, but we but we know we know not to throw sticks and things at them. You just be calm, um, and it's something we just talk about with the kids. So I guess we just deal with it. It's just part of our life. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> Crocodile Dundee didn't do us any favors. But yeah, we're not we're not you know going to work and having to battle through snakes and sharks and pufferfish and stuff. But we they're around. You just got to be aware of them. Oh, we've got, inside we've got, you know, um, yeah, like white-tailed spiders and redbacks and things like that. But again, unless you stick your hand on them or you, you do something, they don't, they don't tend to go for you unless they're feeling threatened. So I think it's a really interesting thing. It's, um, it's just all about respect and empathy, really. Animals are no different. I mean, we're animals. You sense. You sense people's energy. You sense a threat. Um, and if, if you are calm and if you are, if you are empathetic and respectful of nature, then generally it's reciprocated. I mean, like this animals and, and things that we find are scary, um, in our minds, they're not out to get us. They're just living their lives. They're just, you know, a snake is living its life. Um, and sometimes we encounter and sometimes we try and occupy the same little piece of habitat and, uh, Yeah. It happens occasionally, but yeah, I think it all just comes back to to respect and empathy, and and trying to view the world 
I guess, with a broader lens and not see things um, like poisonous animals as a threat. They're just living their lives. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, if you go up to Northern Territory and you swim and you, you're not meant to because there's blue bottles, well, you're in their territory. So, again, respect. Yeah, respect and empathy. That are key lessons for anyone in nature. If you don't have respect and you don't have empathy for your surroundings, you probably won't last too much longer in nature. Um, But Shane, we met through the Youth Environmental Alliance in higher education. And I want to ask, do you have any advice for people in the field just starting out? Find something that really speaks to you. If if you don't, if you're trying to do something that um, you feel like you should be doing as opposed to something that, you know, is just like a natural attraction for you to be studying or to be looking at or to being involved in, then, yeah, you, you might not you might not find the, you know, the strength to go on because it is, it's it's a tough battle. And, and you see, you, you know, I, I, you see peaks and troughs. You know, the, the environment movement with, had a lot of momentum in the early 90s and there was a lot going on and governments were doing stuff and then it all just disappeared. And then in the you know, mid-2000s, it all happened again and then it all just disappeared and now it's all just happening again. So, you know, there's been several iterations in my life and I'm only mid-40s of, yay, you know, we're winning, we're doing something, we're getting somewhere. And then two years later, you go, what happened to that thing we were doing? I thought we were getting somewhere. So you need resilience. Um, and having those, having those passions and that drive for something you really care about and knowing, knowing what you can change and knowing what, what you want to change. And for, for some people that might be sitting with the UN, uh, for some people it might be sitting in a tree for six months, like live the people who live in trees, um, like in the Tasmanian old growth forests, they are, they're heroes. I don't use that word lightly. Like they are here. I could not do that. I, I don't know how they do that. That is some amazing resolve. And they get painted as hippies and, you know, dull bludgers and doing nothing with their lives. They are incredible people. So they should be commended. I couldn't do it. And I think you need to, need to find that. So find that spark in you, find that thing. And if, if that is you, if you're the kind of person that could live in a tree for six months to save that 300 year old, you know, 2000 year old tree, then go for it, you know, do it. Um, if you can, if you've got the means, but also don't be too harsh on yourself. Um, there, there will be barriers and you'll make mistakes and you will fail. Um, and there'll be ideas that you just need to let go. Um, you know, I've, I've been part of starting environment groups that just fizzled and it was heartbreaking and it was a lot of work. Um, but it was okay. It was okay to let it go and, and go, right, well, got to move on with the next part of whatever that journey takes you. So, yeah, I, th- I think finding that, that spark for yourself is a, is a really key thing. And finding your people. That's another really key thing as well. Find people that will support you and and be with you on that journey once you find your people you find your strength and do i think do what's achievable it's it's easy to sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking really big and you know there are a few Greta Thunbergs in the world and there are many other people that aren't just her um who are who, who change 
entire global communities. But changing your community um, is just as powerful. You don't need to be that person who is leading the march of 10,000 people. You can be the person in the background. It's, it's all needed. So, yeah, finding your people and finding your passion. And, yeah, just knowing it's a journey and it's an evolution and it's, it doesn't stop. You don't, um, you don't necessarily find your spot and just go, this is who I am for the next 60 years. Some people do, but that's awesome. I thought I had... At, you know, when I was at Ceres, I was there for 20 years and I just, something just sparked in me and I went, I've got to move, I've got to change, I've got to try something different and I'm really glad that I did. So being open to that evolution is, I think, for me anyway, was is, has been really a key part of my journey. Shane, thank you for the wise advice, the great discussion and for being a guest on today's episode. This has been a Livable Future podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow us on social media, and stay tuned for more episodes. Special thanks to the Tone Ranger who wrote this awesome theme song.